You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. So, I'm a spy, and I'd like to write a book. This week's guests include Nada Bakos, a former CIA analyst and chief targeting officer, Mark Fallon, a former NCIS special agent and director of the Criminal Investigative Task Force at Guantanamo, and Frank Snepp a former chief analyst of North Vietnamese strategy for the CIA during the Vietnam War. What do they have in common? They all wanted to tell their story, they all wanted to write a book, and they all turned to one man for help, Mark S. Zaid Esquire, one of the nation's top national security lawyers. Indeed, as the National Law Journal once wrote, if Agent Mulder ever needed a lawyer, Zaid would be his man. This week's guests discuss their motivations, frustrations, victories and defeats in publishing, the targeter, unjustifiable means and decent interval. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. So, I'm a spy and I'd like to write a book. This week's guests include Nada Bakos, a former CIA analyst and chief targeting officer, Mark Fallon, a former NCIS special agent and director of the Criminal Investigative Task Force at Guantanamo, and Frank Snepp, a former chief analyst of North Vietnamese strategy for the CIA during the Vietnam War. What do they have in common? They all wanted to tell their story, they all wanted to write a book, and they all turned to one man for help, Mark S. Zaid Esquire, one of the nation's top national security lawyers. Indeed, as the National Law Journal once wrote, if Agent Mulder ever needed a lawyer, Zaid would be his man. This week's guests discuss their motivations, frustrations, victories and defeats in publishing, the targeter, unjustifiable means and decent interval. I just want to kick it over to Mark now. Set the scene for us. What what exactly are we talking about here? What's at stake? Um, help give our uh, listeners an understanding of the, the landscape as, as you see it, as someone who's represented so many people that have tried to get their book or their story out but have struggled to get it out. Absolutely, and we've got a stellar group of people here. Of course, I have to first say that this is participating in this podcast is also to make sure that I dominate on your predecessor, Mark Stout, who was the historian at the Spy Museum before you who we have a running joke of who does more podcasts. 
And I am hopefully now in the lead or close to taking over from him. This is a is a is a fascinating topic and one which lots of people interact with, but probably don't realize it as they read some of the best selling books that come out from former government officials, especially in the intelligence and military and law enforcement communities. So I've been working on these cases now for almost 30 years, 25 plus years of representing individuals from within these communities whose has pre-publication review requirements. And to talk at a 30,000 foot view so that we don't get too much into the weeds from the legal perspective, those folks who have access to classified information in the U.S. government at different levels have different pre-pub review obligations. If you have access to what's called SCI, sensitive compartmented information, which you would normally hear as a TSSCI in the lingo that we're familiar with, top secret SCI information, the contractual documents that they sign requires a mandatory prepub review. If you have had access to a lower level of classified information where the majority of federal officials are, millions of people, they don't have a prepub obligation, but they do have a legal obligation not to publish classified information. And I still always recommend to clients that no matter the level that they have had access to, that they submit the book for prepub because the reality is the last thing you want to ever have to do is defend yourself in a criminal proceeding against the U.S. government. I'd much rather represent you in a civil proceeding to challenge classification determinations that we don't agree with than the other way around. But once you put it in and it, the problems are and we're going to hear this throughout the stories we'll hear today. There is a tremendous amount of flexibility, of inconsistency, of problems with timing. How long does it take for the book to be reviewed? What information is reviewed? What is the scope of the information that is subject to pre-publication review? And I'll say just to separate it from the table, we're only going to be talking about those individuals who have already left government service. There are different rules if you still remain in government and you are trying to write a book, if, if you are still, let's say, in the CIA, forget being a contractor, but as a CIA employee, uh, there's still a difference. But the bottom line to kind of finish off the introduction uh, in some way is there is no it is well settled. There is no First Amendment right to the publication of classified information. So the key to understand with these obligations is. Everyone who has had access, like I said, has an obligation not to print or disclose verbally or in writing classified information. It's a separate issue on the pre-pub review requirement, meaning if you do not submit the book for pre-publication review, the government can go after you for breach of contract. A simple contract, just like anyone who enters into any contract, meaning for the SCI component, if you don't submit. And, and Frank, of course, will talk a lot about that because that was much of Frank's situation uh, almost 40, well, 40 years ago already. So what we're seeing, and we'll turn back around to it with John Bolton's situation. John Bolton is both being accused of breaching his contract for not having completed the review and submitting the book 
without having permission from the government, but also for containing classified information. And that can be criminal or civil. And they're very different situations, and the burdens are, of course, very different. But that's the basic overview of the situation. And, of course, we'll talk about how different agencies handle these different review obligations. And it's it's very, I'll say it's complicated, controversial. You'll hear frustration, I'm sure, will be the consistent factor from each of our three other guests. Deservedly so. Uh, understandably so. Uh, and hopefully we'll come up with some ideas of how to better the system. Well, thanks for that 30,000 feet view, uh, Mark. That's been really helpful. And I think that it will be really interesting now to explore our three distinguished guests, their stories, their careers, how their own individual lives intersected with this issue. Because I think that at one level, it's obviously an abstract matter of law or principle, but we're talking about real people uh, with real lives and it's affected them in various ways. And one of the people, Frank Snett, because his case was uh, one of the landmark, if not the landmark case in this issue. So over to you, Frank. One of the most important elements to pre-publication review is time. Time. It takes time. I um, was one of the last 17 CIA officers to come off the roof of the embassy in Saigon, April 29th, 1975. I quit the agency a year later and published my memoir about the events in 1977. That was lightning fast. Because time was of the essence, I was hoping to shame the United States government into intervening diplomatically or otherwise to save the Vietnamese we'd left behind in Saigon, and especially those who had worked for the CIA, who were in imminent danger because of their association for us. I was partially successful, and I want to put this out right up front because it humanizes what happens and why pre-publication review and the way it's conducted and delays involved can be so dangerous. After my book was published, the top U.S. refugee coordinator in Thailand said decent interval my memoir had helped catalyze international support for Vietnamese escapees. I was trying to help them, and my book helped. And communist officials in Hanoi told journalists that because of my book, they had decided to let one million boat people escape Vietnam. Because based on the numbers I'd published, there were too many Saigon loyal Vietnamese left behind to re-educate, read, kill. So, my book accomplished what it was designed to do. Had it been delayed forever and ever and ever, that would have been one more life every day, many lives every day, of Vietnamese we left behind being persecuted. And because of the book, because I got it out fast, within literally two years of my leaving the agency, it did some good. And that's what I was, in fact, it makes everything I went through justified and bearable. And I would do it all over again, just the same way, despite everything that happened. The reason I resigned from the agency to write a book is because I knew that active duty employees, and Mark, you mentioned this, 
Active duties duty employees are under different obligations, and I knew I would never be allowed to publish the book I did if I'd been in the agency. In fact, in fact, I had pleaded with the agency to do an after-action report on the fall of Saigon so we could learn from our mistakes, so we wouldn't do it again, so that people would be prompted to look to the safety of the Vietnamese who had been left behind. When I published my manuscript, as now is history, I published it without CIA clearance because, you know, I thought I was entitled to do so. I thought I was entitled to do so as a former employee, and as long as there were no secrets in my manuscript, the last five secrecy agreements I signed, and listen to this, folks, I signed six of them, and the last five I signed did not cover secrets-free or I should say, should they covered only material that was classified. I was not required to submit for pre-publication review. And again, folks, that is a fancy word for saying censorship before the book or manuscript is published. But I wasn't required to submit any such manuscript that did not contain secrets. And I had, believe me, I had no intention of publishing any secrets. The last thing I wanted to do was to cause further injury to the Vietnamese we had left behind. On my last day, and I'm sorry to get into these details, but I want you to live with me the experiences that you have. On the last day on the, uh, I was in the agency, I told my exit interviewers that I was leaving to write a book because I didn't want to submit it for, for censorship. I told them I would protect secrets. They said nothing to me about clearing anything else, non-secrets. What the hell was that? I wasn't going to publish non-secrets. I wasn't going to publish secrets. I was going to publish only what I thought was safe to publish. And they, they did circulate, by the way, on the day I left, a warning to fellow CIA employees. And they said to the employee, stay away from Frank Snepp. He's writing a book and he's not going to submit it for review. They said that right at the beginning. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew, knew I was a bad guy. They signaled this to everybody. So no, never let anyone tell you that the agency didn't know what I was up to. And by the way, those documents were produced in litigation by the government. So it was on record from the very beginning that I was a bad guy from their standpoint. I was not going to submit for review, but, but I told them emphatically, I will publish no secrets. Now, folks, it never occurred to me, never occurred to me that I would need the agency's help to identify secrets in my manuscript, that I could bring agency censors to tell me what secrets were, folks. I had been trained to identify secrets. Mother of God, I knew secrets of the gazoo. I knew what they looked like. I knew what they smelled like. I could classify them myself. During my five and a half years in Vietnam, I was attached to a small elite unit of analysts, which were cleared for all source intelligence. That's SCI, you name it, there wasn't a secret we didn't know. Now, once in a while, there were some methodologies we didn't know about. We knew every secret that mattered in Vietnam. And eventually, I became the CIA, uh, the senior CIA analyst charged with predicting enemy intentions. I was the ambassador's principal intelligence briefer. At his behest and blessing, 
I routinely briefed journalists spontaneously. Spontaneously. Mark, I'd be briefing you. I, I didn't need the agency looking over my shoulder to edit out secrets. I knew instinctively, and I never betrayed them. So I knew how to protect secrets. I didn't need Big Brother telling me, well, strike this out. I knew how to do it. And that's, by the way, what separates me. And this is, I say this with no humbleness because it happens to be true, but it may separate me from people who are not so well trained. And that's one of the secrets here, folks. You've got to train analysts, operatives, people in the DOD better how to protect secrets when they're on the job. So that becomes instinctive, right? That's the key part of it. Anyway, one of the things I did when I was in the agency, I was deeply involved in our most sensitive intelligence operations involving agents behind enemy lines. I bring this up because it brings again this story to a personal level. Two weeks before the end of the war, I met with this agent, Vovan Baas, his name. His name is now known because the communists captured documents about him and have published them, which I couldn't do when I was writing my book. But anyway, so I talked to Vovan Baas. He comes in. He's dressed as a woman. He's been flown into Saigon, posing as a dead person. He arrives. He loves Budweiser beer. We sit down. We begin talking. He tells me what the communists are going to do. What they're going to do is they're going to attack Saigon within two weeks. They're not going to provide for negotiations. They've had it with negotiations. And he gave us the blueprint. He was like having an agent inside Hitler's bunker. He gave it all to us, all to us. The U.S. ambassador discounted that report. He bet on negotiations, and he did not plan for an evacuation in time, and that's why so many Vietnamese were left behind. I love Ovan Ba, and one of the reasons I wrote these intervals, because I did secrets, folks, were not abstracts for me. They embodied voices, lives, aspirations, sacrifices of the bravest people I knew. And you bet I was going to protect them. After the communist suicide, and I want to, again, set the scene for you, because this happens a lot of times. The agency tries to censor out material that is already spilled into the public domain. In my case, that was in spades, baby. After the communist suicide, they picked up, they located thousands and thousands of classified U.S. documents that had been left undestroyed. The agent, Vo Van Ba, who talked to me, bad things happened to him. A CIA friend of mine was captured by the communists and he gave up the guy's identity. The day Saigon fell or after it fell, Vo Van Ba was arrested, he was tortured. And he hung himself with his belt. One of the bravest men I ever knew ran a risk for us. And we wound up getting him killed. The point is, the point is, apart from intelligence methods, there were no meaningful secrets about Vietnam that survived the communist takeover. So I kept the, the identity of, of Random House as my publisher, secret. We were running a spy operation. I'd meet with my editor in the parks to hand off manuscript to him. 
I practice stagecraft. I'm sorry, tradecraft, stagecraft. I would look in mirrors to make sure I wasn't being followed. I worried about being monitored on the telephone. By the way, in discovery, we just we found out the agency had assigned a case officer to me as, as if I were a hostile spy. I had a major confrontation with the CIA director, uh, Admiral Stansfield Turner. He was a nice, wonderful old guy. He didn't know what the hell he was doing as director of the CIA. A lot of people had turned against him, so he's so pissed off. He didn't want anything, uh, anybody showing indiscipline. And I was the walking example of indiscipline in his view. I met with him and I said to him, Admiral, this is just a few months before publication. I said, Admiral, I'm not going to publish any secrets. I'm going to protect secrets and, and I'm going to adhere to my secrecy obligations. Period. Over and out. You don't have to worry, Admiral. I'm on your side. He pulled out a secrecy agreement I hadn't seen in nine years. This secrecy agreement is the one I signed when I joined the agency in 1968, and it was a doozy. It was like something I'd never imagined. It surprised me. It said that I had to clear everything. Whoa, not everything. Did that mean if I wanted to talk about the agency cafeteria's menu, that had to be cleared? This is what this document implied. More than that, and here's the real zinger, it said it was agency policy to disallow publication of anything. So this document I had didn't make any sense, right? And I walk in and I said, crap, I'm not going to stay with this anymore. I'm going to go ahead and do what I intended to do in the first place. I'm going to publish my book at As I See Fit. I did so. A month after the book was published, in November 1977, and it hit the newsstands. It was all over the New York Times. I debuted on 60 Minutes. I was just hot shot, and I was outrageous. That was part of the problem. I had huge exposure, huge. I got publicity that hadn't been devoted to a national security story since the Pentagon Papers case. It's hard to imagine. So what they did was to bring lawsuit against me, the Justice Department said that for all practical purposes, there were no secrets in my book. That's right. They basically said that everything I had written was in the public domain. My sin, they said, was that I published it without clearance. Also, there's a problem with the idea of a secrecy agreement as a contract, Mark. Hello there. There's a big problem with it. Under, under contract law, you've got to prove damage in order to collect damages, unless you're going to collect a dollar, dollar for symbolic reasons. But how do you, how do you calculate damage from a book that contains no secrets? That was a problem for the government. So what they did, they reached back to British common law and they said, but think horse thief, think horse thief. Frank Stepp is like a horse thief. He's stolen a horse and he's now required to restore all the money made from the horse, or reselling it, to the government, to the owner, the government. And that's how they justified confiscation of all of my profits without any showing of damage. Well, there's a lot there that I would like to unpack a little bit more. Uh, and I'm no lawyer, but 
I'm pretty sure that if you dig back into English common law, you can reach just about any conclusion you want. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure there's still some law that says that it's legal to kill a Scotsman within the city walls of York with a bow and arrow. But that's maybe for another spy cast. Uh, so let's move on to Mark. Tell us a little bit more about your story, um, frustrations and, and things that you encountered along the way. I wrote Unjustifiable Means because I felt compelled to. Torturers and their apologists made a concerted effort to rewrite history, shape the perception of the American public, and they used dubious claims of heroic action. But there's nothing heroic about abusing a defenseless human being. Those actions cost lives. Those actions are a stain on the Constitution. Those actions contributed to the proliferation of global violent extremism and turned the global war on terror into a global war of terror. We continue to pay the price for accepting torture as a matter of national policy. Truth matters, and the public deserves to know the truth about torture. And so I wrote Unjustified Means because I was compelled to. Now, 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 let me talk a little bit about my background, my career, and what I've done subsequent to government service that continues to be censored in the manner in which Frank has described. So of note concerning the issues related to pre-publication review, some of the issues that were paramount was that I was chief of counterintelligence operations for the NCIS Europe African Middle East Division. So I was responsible for the collection, assimilation, I had teams of analysts, and the dissemination of any threat warning information regarding the Department of Navy, the Navy Marine Corps. Uh, when the USS Cole was attacked, I became the tactical commander of the USS Cole Task Force investigating the Al-Qaeda terrorist network for the attack on the Cole. Now, now those responsibilities included both criminal investigation, which we worked jointly with the FBI, as a federal agent, and the collection of intelligence and dissemination of intelligence to the Department of Defense as collectors as the primary counterintelligence agency for the Navy and Marine Corps. Subsequent that, to that, after the attacks of September 11th, I was detailed to the Army and reported to the Office of Secretary of Defense, the General Counsel for Donald Rumsfeld, and I became the Deputy Commander and chief investigator for the Criminal Investigation Task Force, and I was the government's chief investigator responsible for the investigation of the Al-Qaeda terrorist network for trials before military commissions. Those trials that are continuing at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, 20 years after the offenses that some of those have been accused of uh, uh, were involved in. So, so also, I also served on the Board of Governors of the Department of Defense Joint Counterintelligence Training Academy. So, so that's the entity that oversees the counterintelligence training uh, within the Department of Defense uh, and on the Federal Law Enforcement Training Accreditation Board, accrediting federal training academies. So, so that is totally unclassified in, in those reviews. Uh, in 2010, when I retired from government service, I didn't fade away and become nothing. Okay, I have a career post-government service 
that continues to be censored. So in 2010, I became the senior vice president of the Safan Group, an international consultancy and the director of law enforcement programs at the Qatar, or Qatar, as most Americans pronounce it, International Academy for Security Studies. I was the program manager for studies of violent extremism and traveled around the world with a team of, of, of researchers that included former FBI, former CIA, former NCIS personnel, and we interviewed formers, former extremists, former combatants, former terrorists. We traveled to France, Indonesia, Northern Ireland, Singapore, Great Britain, and we talked to formers all over the place. We talked to former IRA combatants, loyalist groups, Jama'a Samia, uh, Al-Qaeda, and their affiliates. We spoke to convicted terrorists. We went into jails. We debriefed Ali Imran, one of the Bali bombers. We spoke to terrorist financers, terrorist training camp emirs, terrorist recruiters, and terrorist radicalizers. Uh, we submitted a report to the Interpol General Assembly, and we did a follow-on study uh, on narrative strategies and counter-narrative strategies. Okay, through all of that period, those two years of doing these interviews, writing reports, publicly uh, disseminating them, not once did anyone come back and say, hey, did anybody review those things? Because never did we envision that that post-government work would require someone to take a look and review and potentially censor our material. So in 2012, I started my own strategic consultancy firm, Club Fed LLC. Uh, and when President Obama issued Executive Order 13491, saying the government will no longer torture, that led to the establishment of the U.S. government's high-value detainee interrogation group. And that led to the first time in 50 years of major U.S. government-sponsored research into why somebody would actually give us information. Okay, so, so why someone would talk to us and, and how we would extract it. We're not going to torture because we know that doesn't provide accurate and reliable information. What techniques would you use, should we use to elicit that? And so I was appointed to the HIG, the High Value Detainee Interrogation Group Research Committee, and I was the first chair of that research committee. And I helped the HIG, which was a joint agency with a director from the FBI, one deputy director from the CIA, and one deputy director from the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency. And so I would help assist them in training interrogators who were the people who would be designated to train, to, to interrogate the highest value targets to our national security. In that capacity, I was encouraged to speak out publicly and to write about the Hig Research Program. I went around to conferences. I wrote articles in Police Chief Magazine. I wrote articles in the Journal of Applied Cognitive Psychology, all with the encouragement of the Hig, the High Vegetarian Interrogation Group, never once requesting that I submit anything I published for their review or pre-publication review. I openly submitted it and was never asked a question about it. The HIG was redisseminating what I was writing because it promoted lawful 
evidence-based and human rights compliant techniques. I went to Capitol Hill. I met with senators and congressmen. I was part of Human Rights First National Security Professionals Program, where we brought national security professionals together to talk to policymakers about how dangerous it is to utilize torture as an instrument of national power because it, it not only is counter, it's not only ineffective, it's counterproductive. It gets you bad information and it results in bad policy decisions uh, and, and bad results. Now, now, the first time I really wrote in detail about the torture program is I was asked to by Human Rights First. They asked if they could use my voice because they heard me speak about this in, in a number of different venues. When I saw the torture program as a reason that we captured or that we killed Osama bin Laden, I knew that to be factually inaccurate. So I, I was the deputy commander of a task force of that manning, manning of about 230 personnel with forward deployed personnel in Afghanistan, Iraq, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, collecting information to determine who we brought to justice for military commissions, to conduct those investigations, and to also chair transfer review boards to determine who we might want to release or transfer from custody at Guantanamo. So, so that was the background I had in government service. And, and when I got out of government service, so I wrote a piece for Huffington Post, and it was titled, Interrogators Speak Out, Torture is Illegal, Immoral, and Ineffective. That was in, in 2012. Never heard anything back. No one questioned it. In 2014, in conjunction with the release of the Senate Torture Report Executive Summary. In 2015, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. Time's up on Gitmo, Mr. President, when Obama was president, when I was urging him to close Guantanamo. Never once did anyone tell me that should have been submitted to pre-publication review. In 2016, I published more pieces in the Huffington Post. Congress should act to solidify the ban against torture. Surviving, evading, resisting, and escaping seer accountability. And Congress administration must review efforts to close Guantanamo. Not once did anyone question me. Not once did anyone give me any feedback that I should have submitted those to pre-publication review. Not once did I receive any criticism for publishing those from anyone within the government. It wasn't until 2017 when my publisher, Regan Arts, posted the cover of Unjustifiable Means and that I became the target of government scrutiny in an offensive effort to try to determine what I was going to publish. The government started to look at me as an insider threat. And I know this because I was told that from people within the government. Officers of the CIA started asking questions about me of my colleagues from NCIS. Now, I had a 31-year career with the United States government, being involved in some of the most significant terrorist operations in U.S. history, from the case against the Blind Sheikh, to the first World Trade Center attack, to the USS Cole, to the 9-11 attack. And now I am being offensively targeted as an insider threat. Uh, they took runs at me. 
they had they had people call me to ask what my intentions were about pre-publication review. Uh, and I told them up front, I fully intend if I had that obligation, which I did not know. I legitimately was not sure and had intended to ask that question when the time was right. But w when Regan Arts published the cover, I was still in the midst of the manuscript. So I wasn't done. And when I was completed, I was going to try to determine because the people I asked within NCIS, nobody knew. Everyone said, well, we know the FBI does. I talked to people in NCIS who published books. One said, yeah, I gave them a week to look at in two weeks. Others said, I published, didn't ask anybody. Don't think we have that requirement. So I legitimately didn't know. So, so in that post-government service career, I was also a, an elected official of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. So I am currently the chair of the International Managers of police academies and college trainers. So I write and publish work in Police Chief Magazine uh, and within the ICP as a law enforcement professional. That work product now is submitted for pre-publication review. And so the first piece I wrote in Police Chief Magazine, I did not submit because it was prior to 2017, before I was told I had an affirmative obligation. I published a piece this year that went through pre-publication review. So I am also uh, completed uh, a two-year, that's, I'm completing my two-year term with the ICP. In 2016, I was asked by Juan Mendez, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, to assist him as a consultant in the development of a thematic that he presented before the UN General Assembly in 2016. He presented those findings, and in 2017, I spoke at the General Assembly in New York City about the dangers of using torture as an instrument of national policy. Since 2017, I've been on a 15-person global steering committee looking at principles for effective interviewing that are about to be published. I intentionally did not include myself as an author of any of that finished product because that would have opened up those other co-authors to scrutiny by the United States government. And so I removed myself from the drafting of it. Now, I, I remained as consultant. I gave advice and counsel. I, I remained a steer of that, uh, but I intentionally did not write that. I am currently on the advisory council of the Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. If I write anything for Searle, it is subject to pre-publication review, and I have and have been published in the Rule of Law blog at Penn Law, and that work product has been subject to pre-publication review. I'm currently a visiting scholar within the Department of Psychology, looking at research on interrogations at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I'm the co-founder of Project Aletheia, a, a project established to bridge the gap between the science and practice of interrogation. I've been published with a co-author who is a research psychologist 
from John Jay named Maria Hartwig were published a few months ago in Psychology Today. Our work product was subjected to pre-publication review. This infringes upon academic freedoms. If I write with a lawyer, it infringes upon some of their responsibilities. They have to be everywhere. There are people who will not write with me when I tell them that my product is subjected to pre-publication review. So my point is, now when I consult with clients or when I speak publicly or write something, it is not my government service I'm writing about. It is about a body of work subsequent to my government service that encompasses all of this work. My work as doing unclassified research projects, my work as a visiting scholar, my work on the Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, my work as a elected official of the International Associations of Chiefs of Police, and I feel that this is an intrusion upon the public's right to know what someone like me has accumulated with the body of work, not of my government service, but as a foundation and, and since my government service. And, and so that is why I speak out so vocally about this, because I think it's a matter of public interest, and we are denying the public the right to choose what information to listen to. Okay, thanks, Mark. We haven't been very successful at sticking to the two or three minutes, but I feel like I can't. <laughs> I feel like I can't impose that on uh, Nada now. So, um, yeah, o- over to you. I'm looking forward to hearing your story. I think what's really interesting about hearing Frank and Mark's perspective is that each of them have talked about why they wrote their book, and so often within the intelligence community we really criticize each other for releasing information and talking at times, especially former employees before the most recent glut of of books. I was questioned by former employees, well, why are you writing a book constantly? Not all, but some. Because that that shroud of secrecy, especially around CIA, is, is sacrosanct to employees. And There's many former employees who will live and die their anonymous service to our country as as CIA employees. But one of the reasons I decided to write the book is because I thought there were not a lot of women, and especially analysts, that were writing books about their perspective and their role in what it's like to work for the CIA. And I think there is a need for diversity within national security. I think we all know it was a fairly male-dominated workplace for a long time. It's much better now. And so I I wanted something that other young women could actually envision themselves doing. But I also wanted to write from the perspective of an analyst, because I think the more the public understands how the intelligence community functions and how the CIA functions, the less confusion there is about what their role is and their mandate. Because I think we've all uh, seen the movies where CIA officers run around arresting people. That doesn't happen because they're not law enforcement. So some of this is inside baseball stuff. But at the same time, I think the taxpayers really need to understand what they're paying for. 
And that's part of how come I wanted to write my book. But in addition to the fact that I was part of the team in the run-up to the Iraq war that was charged with analyzing whether or not Iraq had anything to do with 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. And we found that they did not prior to the war. We delivered all that information to Congress and the president. And then my experience after the invasion, as well as an analyst, and then eventually becoming a targeting officer. I wanted the public to see how we execute counterterrorism strategies and tactics. Um, what did that look like inside of Iraq? What did that look like more broadly outside of Iraq? What are the pitfalls of some of those strategies and tactics and what should we do differently? And I think the people who have lived and breathed some of these things, um, similar to what Frank and Mark were talking about, we are here for lessons learned. We are here to tell the public and future employees, here's something you could do differently that we weren't able to do or didn't do. And I think that's important as well. But I would say <laughs> from my perspective on the, on the uh, pre-publication review, going through the process of having to sue the government was a real decision because I, you know, this Mark's not cheap. I had to pay that money out of the book. Um, I wasn't paid Oprah wages for my book. Um, I was a you know public employee for a large part of my career, so I didn't have the the bank account to draw from to just you know forfeit the funds and publish it without worrying. So I went through the process of trying to extract it and legally publish it. And I do think it's important to protect sources and methods and classified information. And that's another reason that I went through this process. But at the same time, that process is so broken. It's irreversible. I can't even say the word. It is very, very broken. To change that process, it wouldn't be that hard. I mean, reciprocal agreements between government agencies to start with, that you have a deadline that you have to meet. Once you receive that manuscript, you have to give it back to the host, the originator, within a certain amount of time. My manuscript went to almost every agency out there because I worked with so many different agencies um, during my time at the CIA. And it was held up for a long time because of these lack of deadlines and enforcements. There's a lots of inconsistency about how they go about declassifying or classifying information. We all know that, but things are overclassified quite often. But it we Within the publication review process, they're not declassifying information. What they're doing is just making sure that we're not telling secrets and that we're not revealing the sources and methods. And as Frank had mentioned earlier, a lot of us were at the top of our career, the subject matter expert within the field that we're talking about. And so for them to review that piece of it, there may be only one or two other people within the agency who were read into the same things that you that we were. You know, I can just say, like, there are probably only three or four people that could have read my book and really understood what sources and methods could or could not have been compromised. So I was, in, I was very careful when I wrote the book to make sure that I didn't hurt any ongoing operations. My old boss was still there working in some of those um, areas, so I was very conscious of it. And... I would also say within, within the publication piece, um, one of the things that changed under Obama is 
our inability to cite published works as being already out in the public domain. So then therefore we could use this information. That all changed with Snowden and WikiLeaks. That was, that changed our world completely. So it didn't matter if it was published over and over and over in the New York Times, we couldn't talk about it or confirm it. Because they're saying, if we, if we discuss it, then we're confirming that information. And I understand that to a certain extent, but when something is out in public domain for a certain period of time and discusses fact, I think the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> and we need to realize that there is information that's confirmed, whether I, whether I say it or not. So the, well, the one thing I want to conclude with is how I extracted my book. I hired Mark Zaid. He helped prompt the government to re- at least respond to me and tell me why the book is stuck. Mark, tell me if I can say this part. I ended up having to sit down with the components of the Department of Defense in a secure room. And I'll tell you, I don't currently hold a clearance, nor did I when I extracted the book and sat with them and walk them through every single redaction that they had redacted and explain to them why, in some cases, they didn't have primacy over those redactions because I'm not a DOD employee. I don't have obligations to them in the same way I do CIA. And they were trying to redact things that were specific CIA operations and specific to the CIA. So I did cover that piece. Then they were trying to redact very simple things like General McChrystal's name. He had a book out by then and had been speaking publicly. He and I both appeared in HBO's Manhunt and spoke. It was a long slog and a long day of conversations, but we got through it. And some of it was because DOD did not have clear guidance for everybody. They didn't really understand what they're supposed to look at. They were, they were looking at it going, well, that looks like sources and methods. So I completely understand why those guys came to the conclusions they did with some of pieces of that book because they didn't know. And so thankfully after that day, I was actually able to extract the book for the most part. What I have published now is probably three quarters of what I had submitted. So I was pretty happy at least with that piece. I was just going to say, Nada, like you, I was unable to cite uh, newspaper accounts. I was unable to cite congressional hearings because uh, what I did is I, I, I went back through the uh, uh, Senate Armed Service Committee hearings and went back through the Senate Torture Report hearings, uh, and, and I tried to piece what was happening around me uh, during my time. And, and I was and, and even things that were published in Congress were redacted. And when I and my my manuscript was shipped out to ten different agencies, they wouldn't tell me who who. And they refused to sit down with me. I said, if you'll sit down with me, I'll show you the public sources for this. All of this, I, I've, I've watched all the C-SPAN hearings. I pulled all this from open source material. I was an investigator, right? I, I know how to do this stuff. I just put these parts of the mosaic together to show why I failed in bringing terrorists to justice. There are a lot of these decisions that happened that I didn't know about. I just pieced them together in a way that they didn't like. And, and so at least you got to sit down and be frustrated. I was able to be frustrated never having been able to sit down with them. You had to have hired me, Mark. And I promise you, <laughs> promise you, they will sit down with you. Can, can, I, uh, can, can I interject uh, two thoughts coming off of this previous conversation? Uh, we're talking about, for the folks who are tuning in and don't have to 
submit to the pre-publication review, it may get a little complicated. We're talking about two uh, phenomena. One is, what do you have to submit for pre-publication review? Number two, what can be deleted once they've got your manuscript? What has to be submitted is about this. It just about comes down to this. It certainly does for me. I have to submit everything to pre-publication review to determine what I must submit to pre-publication review. Because if you guess wrong, the penalties are pretty significant. So what you wind up doing is over-censoring yourself in deference to the imprecision and the breadth of the government rules. Number two, one of the things that has bedeviled me most in trying to get things cleared once, or I should say, get released after I've submitted for them for review for a um, decision on deletions, is a concept known as reclassification. The Reagan administration adopted a rule that I'd never heard of before, which was the government can take a perfectly good non-secret or something that has been declassified and released, say, under the public, uh, the Freedom of Information Act, and for reasons that are totally obscure, reclassify it so that what you got published today as unclassified can be reclassified tomorrow and subject to redaction, which makes the entire censorship process per se a crapshoot and totally unanticipatable. You cannot, going into this, know what the hell may be whacked out of your manuscript. I had a situation where I had had something cleared in a previous manuscript that got whacked out in the next one I submitted, the same passage, the same reference. And I had to go back and say, hey, folks, what's happened here? Don't you have any records? The problem is the PRB is over is overworked, and they don't have a bank of information on what's been cleared and what isn't. And your suggestion, I know that we, some kind of mechanisms created for that kind of retrieval. So they know what they've been, they've, uh, they've cleared before. But the, the craziness about this is that it's imprecise as to what you must submit. And so you must submit everything to be on the safe side. So there's another complication. I mentioned this only, Andrew, because for you know, if you're listening in to this podcast, this sounds like a lot of, uh, uh, you know, smoke and mirrors. And the agencies all have a good public policy rationale. It is that you, Nada, you, Mark, I'm talking about Mr. Fallon there, don't know enough to be able to identify every piece of information which released seemingly harmless might do real harm in the larger mosaic of intelligence that only the gods know, and you don't. Right. Thank you. He, for those of you who can't see what he's putting on the screen, it begins with B and ends with T. Exactly. But unfortunately, you try to go into court and you argue that it won't work. <laughs> I tell you, B plus T just doesn't swing it with a lot of judges. Well, hey, and they will be very deferential to the government's claims. Let, let me give you a little bit of aspect of, of something. I'll start with the fact, though, I recommend Irreparable Harm that Frank wrote in 1999 by a publisher who is also my publisher, the uh, University Press at Kansas. A fantastic book detailing what Frank went through. And one of the things that, that Frank did, and also... Strangely enough, Stansfield Turner, who you spoke about earlier, there's a book that he wrote called Secrecy and Democracy in 1985. And it is so it's it's 
laugh. It's, it's ironically funny because in his introduction, he talks about Frank's case because he was the DCI, the director of CIA at the time. And then he he just decries the CIA review process that he went through because of all the very things that each of you have talked about today. And he and his lawyer, who was a former general counsel of CIA, Tony Lapham, who's sadly deceased, good guy, they told the CIA, and I know many people who did this, John Bolton did this too, this does not work. Hey, you government, I'm going to publish. If you think this book is so seriously jeopardizing sources or methods, come after me. You file the lawsuit to prevent me from publishing. CIA or any agency never does it. They require and force each of you to go to court on your own. And Mark and Nader, you described different circumstances, the difference being in Nader's case we sued, in Mark's case you didn't. And that's unfortunate because you should all be treated the same. But for, for those of my clients who we go to court, we don't always win. I can tell you cases we didn't win, but we generally significantly prevail because we get a third party, the judiciary, involved to, although they're deferential, as Frank mentioned, they will hold an agency's feet to the fire if the agency is coming across unreasonable or, frankly, laughable at times. And some of these decisions really are that. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. It's been great, like all of you sharing your stories and stuff, but I, I want to try to lasso the conversation and a little bit more and try to there's a few things that i want to touch upon i mean i guess one thing that just came to mind was stansfield turner was a former navy admiral that was the dci as mark said during the carter era so 77 to 81 and just really briefly mark for people that aren't lawyers where's the fourth circuit so the fourth circuit uh covers northern virginia where the cia is and north carolina I think West Virginia and Maryland. Yeah, and it, it is the CIA's backyard, and it and, is and the NSA. It's handled. Well. It's and right. it's handled. Yes, and it's also handled almost all of these cases, if I'm not mistaken. Certainly from Marchetti to mine, and uh, right down to the present. So they are 
very attuned to the CIA's point of view and very, I hate to say it, sympathetic oftentimes. I want to just interject something again, because the people who will be listening in may find much of this not accessible. Not that we haven't articulated brilliantly, folks, but nonetheless, surviving a lifetime gag rule, I've been trying to think how to make it comprehensible to somebody on the outside. It's sort of like having Big Brother potentially at your shoulder with a listening device in your head and a pistol cocked to the back of your ear. You know, you're constantly second guessing yourself as you write and speak. You're constantly consulting lawyers like Mark to find out what the hell you can you can do, what you must submit. You're constantly worrying about what you got cleared yesterday, maybe classified or reclassified or somehow redesignated so it can't be published tomorrow. You're constantly trying to persuade producers, editors, publishers that they don't run any risk themselves by buying your stuff. All of these things inhibit you as a human being, and you're reduced to what George Orwell merely imagined, which is Big Brother's plaything. I mean, really, that sounds ridiculous. You got to put yourself in the shoes of the people who've appeared on this podcast. That's exactly what it's like. Exactly. Just briefly, uh, Mark Zaid, tell us about the Marchetti case. We've mentioned that a couple of times, just for a couple of sentence answer. Yeah, Victor Marchetti uh, rose to be the executive assistant to the director, I think was his last position, if I recall. And he wrote a book with another individual called The Cult of Intelligence. He became very outspoken against the CIA. He submitted it for prepub, as Frank indicated. It started out in, he lived in Northern Virginia, like many CIA uh, employees do. So uh, it was significantly censored. And his, his case decisions are actually fairly favorable, in particular because it talked about a 30-day period, which is irrelevant now. And it also talked about the possibility, and I believe, as I recall, Frank, actually, you dealt with this too, which is mind-blowing today. But it talked about having a trial on the substantive decisions, like literally having witnesses to talk about from both sides what should and should not be classified. I guess that was a pipe dream back in the 1970s. It's not a reality today. And I think from a practical standpoint, what I also have to tell for everybody who's listening is most cases, and I think this was probably the case for all of, well, I think for all of you guys, and is typical. Most times people write their manuscript, give it to a literary agent, the literary agent then gets it to a publisher. The publisher then accepts it. It goes through editing, and then it gets submitted, if it gets submitted at all. Hopefully it does. It gets submitted for prepub review. Those are all violations. Exactly. All violations, because yeah. no one can share their information with anyone else until authorized. I never want anyone to be on the defensive in a prepub review case. You will lose. If you're on the offensive, you can win. Why is that, Mark? Why why do you stand a chance when you're on the offense but not on defense, just like for a layman? Primarily because oftentimes the government can't support what its arguments are, quite frankly. The timing is always an issue, and that's going to be subjective. How long has the process been? I usually like to, to say I don't want to sue before six months has gone by. 
that six months is actually not a bad period of time historically. I don't, I don't think I think it should be shorter, but just looking at how long these take as a practical matter, especially with COVID now, obviously. But it is usually because the what has been created, judicially speaking, is that there is a framework for what the government, the executive branch, needs to provide to the judicial branch to justify its decisions. And it's complicated because, again, I can't be involved as much as I think I should be as a lawyer. But in the Stillman case, the three of you all mentioned the level of expertise that you have. In Because of the Stillman case, I would be able to have you draft a declaration showing your expertise to counter the government's alleged expertise with a caveat. How are you going to do that? How, what are you going to type your document on? Because you can't create a classified document on your non-secure computer. And that's complicated. And you won't be allowed to see the government's classified submission, which complicates it. And this is where there's room for additional strengthening of the process, especially with respect to the access that the lawyers and the individual authors can get so that they can show to the court the two sides of the coin. Because ultimately, I know for these three guests and I know for the other clients I've had, I have not yet met a client who tells me they want to disclose classified information. No, it's the opposite. They don't want to disclose classified information. But there's an argument about, is this properly classified? And we need a neutral arbitrator or arbiter in the court system to be able to take on that mission. I I think it's important, I mean, as as someone who would investigate people for unauthorized disclosures, that, that this process could frustrate someone into disclosures. And so I think it's actually counterproductive. Uh, if you drive someone to frustration, if you delegitimize a process that ought to be legitimate, that ought to be helpful to authors like us, who ne- would never, ever want to jeopardize national security. I mean, we, we've stood, I mean, we've risked our lives. I mean, I've been in Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen and places like that, right? I mean, this is not something that we take lightly. The obli- I still have a clearance. I still consult with the government. I would never, ever envision trying to jeopardize that. I understand that the requirements are lifelong. What I am certainly not contesting is that I'm contesting that that what they are doing is creating a process that's counterproductive to their aims. If your goal is to prevent disclosures, this does nothing towards that. And I'm not sure if the listeners understand this. It applies to fictional work. So Rick Kamen as a lawyer, you know, he defended somebody I investigated, a guy named Nashery, who we believe was part of the boats operation or the USS Cole attack. He's currently uh, undergoing military commission at Guantanamo. Rick was a learned defense counsel who retired, wrote a fictional book about the court process. It's been more than a year, he tells me. I just contacted him recently and said, what's the status? That his work of fiction is is being under under review. Now if it's fiction, what are they trying to in his mind determine what 
fictional character might have something classified or not. I, I mean, clearly what this could result in is frustration. More Snowdens, you know, more people who just say this is no, a joke. No, Snowden's, Snowden's a class by himself. But, but there are, I mean, uh, you know, yeah, there so, are examples of what Mark is speaking about, though, of individuals who got frustrated with the process. And because the process wasn't fluid enough, they went ahead and published and and some of them got away with it. And others, frankly, did not, uh, although we can question whether they frankly care uh, about it. But when you talk about they got away with it, how many people have really been criminally prosecuted? Because I think this is something that the listener needs to understand. Criminal prosecutions are fairly rare. We talked about John Bolton possibly facing that. But majority of the people who have gotten away with it were people who were wealthy and could afford to just forfeit the funds. And that, to me, is a path that's opening that is really, really setting a horrible precedent that the government just seems to be fine with in a way. Can I just jump in? Yeah. Uh, Nada, can you just speak a little bit more about that, please? I know we spoke about it the other night on the phone. Like you mentioned mm-hmm. that there's a yeah. process in place that yeah. for people that don't so, have money and so forth. So, for example, there were a couple of books in more recent history that were um published that was not submitted for review. One was um, published under the name Ishmael Jones, and another one was published under by Amaryllis Fox. Neither of those books had uh, pre-publication review. I, I do believe at least one of them was submitted, but just never got a response and went ahead and published. I think that is setting a precedent that is really detrimental because my understanding is both of those parties walked away from worrying about any financial repercussions because they have the funds, they have the wealth behind them to not worry about it. If you are someone that is a typical former government employee, you don't normally have the funds to be able to just walk away from it. Being approved for the TV and film rights, well, by the time it was actually approved, those conversations had fallen apart because we're talking like, you know, 18 months later. (laughs) So those are just a couple examples. But I will say there, there are, There are, to my knowledge, no known examples of anyone being criminally prosecuted for including classified information in a book. Well, there's a guy named Morrison. There are. No, Morrison was prosecuted. Um, I you're forget right, his first right. name. He was a uh, naval, right, he was right. naval Samuel, officer. Um, yeah, Samuel, Samuel Morrison. My you're right. Senate, Samuel my Morrison. You're right. Back in the him, 80s. And he was creamed. He was creamed because he did publish. He was he was creamed under the uh, a theft of government property statutes and variations on the espionage statute. So yeah, you can be yeah. very seriously creamed. Sorry, and that, let's not that forget. Is and the only one. and no, what, what about? I'm sorry. What about Snowden? He's being prosecuted. Uh, He's, the that's a separate issue. Yeah. Right. Not for the. Well, book. the point is though, there not are the penalties book. out there. That have been levied against serious offenders. I, I just, I just, but not not very consistently, and certainly not from the criminal prosecution. And one thing the public needs to understand is the the classification process is not verifying truthfulness in these manuscripts. Their job is not to make sure you're telling the truth. Their their job is just to make sure you're not divulging secrets and sources and methods. So, so spycast listeners go. The whole game up from people that are in the IC, former IC, through to just the average person on the street that is quite interested in this issue. So 
So for this, like they may have, I know about the Pentagon Papers, I know about Edward Snowden, like is this something different or is this similar? And are, are these guys whistleblowers or not whistleblowers? They all had different uh, rationales, although there was some strain of similarity. Mark Zaid, help break this down for us. Like, I just want to get, I want to get Mark in on this because Spycast can't afford to pay his fees. So, so he continues to do this pro bono. Uh, you know, I just, I just kind of want to get him involved. So, over to you, Mark. Help the average listener understand all of this. Sure, and I'm thinking more about Frank's comments about Sam Morrison, and I'm not sure. So he wrote it. I don't think it was a book. It was just it was an article in Jane's. He published an articles in. Jane's Weekly, a UK publication, and uh, and he gave them photographs that. So from a book standpoint, I mean it's really it's close enough that I that I agree, and so to understand for the Pentagon Papers, and this this goes to actually what I was talking about earlier with respect to should the U.S. government go after someone for an injunction. And there's a reason why we want the government, we try to encourage the government to come after the author, even though it never does, because the the burden that was created in the Pentagon Papers case, which was Daniel Ellsberg illegally leaking classified information, a Pentagon secret history to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others, and then the government sued civilly to get an injunction that uh, the court, the Supreme Court held that it was an incredibly high burden. Now, if they had been prosecuted, it would have been probably very different, and the Supreme Court talked about that, but that's a totally separate issue for us to do a podcast on the Espionage Act. But you can sense the frustration of the incons- from our speakers here of the inconsistency, the selectiveness of the U.S. government as to how it handles these reviews. Some of that is because it's different agencies— some of it is because of when they submitted the book and what was the country going through at the time, the people in power. Uh, we haven't even talked about, but I'll throw in now, the deferential treatment that is given to m- former senior government officials, meaning even we've got senior people here, but I'm talking about at the director level, where they you know, just seemingly get their books published very quickly. It goes through the review very quickly, very little in the way of redaction. Uh, And all of that just creates this increasing frustration, much to some extent, or maybe even contributing to what was discussed about earlier, is if the system isn't refined or reformed, does it actually accomplish what it wants? Can it actually have the negative impact of leading people to disregard submitting their books? And and we all know, and we don't have to go into the detail here, but we know of some people who constantly publish and never have their work reviewed. I should also say, and Frank's case is, is unique in the sense it created what the government can do as far as a civil remedy. And NATO was just commenting about the notion of, well, if you have money and you could afford the civil loss, then it is... Uh, You know, it's not as a deterrent, so to speak. And that is because the civil remedy for the breach of contract, not the criminality aspect, is to get an injunction against the royalties that have not yet occurred. Frank Snepp is still paying or Random House is still paying whatever royalties Frank gets 
for a book that was published 44 years ago goes to the U.S. government. But if you didn't make any money off of anything, there's very little the government can do. For those who go on the news nowadays, a lot of newscasters are or contributors are former CI people or military people. And they're not submitting anything for review because they're talking extraporaneously, right, in the live moment. Uh, and hopefully they don't reveal anything classified because if they did, they could be prosecuted. I never heard of that happening that I know of. But they're not submitting. You're supposed to technically verbal. I, well, let's put it very poignantly, blankly. This program right now, technically speaking, we should have called up our agencies who hold our clearances and summarize what we were going to talk about uh, and make sure it's okay. They don't have the resources to be able to even handle this. And it's such a joke because I can't call them up and have a classified phone conversation on a non-secure line. I mean, I'm the only one of the four of us who's actually near the, the seat of the U.S. government. Everybody else is thousands of hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. So the system is broken. It is designed to protect the executive branch. And it is unfortunate that, that no one else seems to have an interest in really fixing it. But my role as the lawyer is to give guidance to folks like we have here to make sure that they don't get in any, any trouble. That's the first and foremost. And that they can get as much information published as possible. And like I said, oftentimes we succeed, not always, and fictionalized accounts, you're right. They'll block that. And Mark, you should you should tell Rick yeah. to contact me because I'll sue the government for it. Andrew, I want to interject something because we've gone through this whole broadcast and not mentioned U.S. versus SNAP in the sense of what it did. The United States Supreme Court, in my case, in 1980, decided that I had, despite the fact there were no uh, reported secrets in my book and no prosecutable secrets, it, it confiscated all of my profits and established a regime which is governing the entire uh, pre-publication review system. And it basically certifies the government's right to demand to see just about anything, any government fiduciary. And I'm talking about people who've necessarily signed clear contracts. But if you're in a position of trust in the national security community, and if you were exposed to classified information, the Supreme Court of the United States says that alone could subject you to pre-publication review. And this ruling, which was decided summarily, not with either side, not my lawyers, not the government's being allowed to offer arguments to the court. The court basically read the news clips and our initial filings, very few, and decided against me and for the government across the board. And that's what's established this regime we're talking about today. And unfortunately, it's, very, it's anchored on an argument that's very hard to refute, which is that somebody if absent pre-publication review, might might accidentally release something dangerous to the government. It's so speculative, it's contrary to the Pentagon Papers' notion that you need a heavy burden of proof to stop someone from saying something. The ruling in my case stands for a completely relaxed standard on stopping people from saying something. It is just whether or not there may be, might be, could be, 
damage from what you do. And one thing that I wanted to ask each of uh, our authors is, at what point did you know that you wanted to write a book? Was there a specific turning point? Like for Frank, for example, was it, was a, I've read a description that you gave of being on top of that roof in 1975 and looking down at the Vietnamese people. Was that like, was that the moment when you, you, you needed to write a book? The moment I decided to write something was when I went, I arrived back at Langley after the fall of Saigon. I thought everybody would be brought in. We'd have a review. We'd decide what we, we could do. We would mobilize the State Department to rescue Vietnamese. We'd been left behind. Instead, I was given a document that preconceived the conclusions. Nothing went wrong. Everybody who wanted to get out could. End of story. Frank, would you like to go to Mexico and work there for the CI? Choice assignment. Just shut up. Take the language training and be happy you've got a job. That pissed me off so badly. I literally thought I was going to go crazy. I sat in Spanish language training, and I heard the voices of people who'd been screaming for help over our radios in Saigon the last day. I left. I remember it was so vivid. I said, this can't stand. If I become complicit in the silence, I am as immoral as the people who made the wrong decisions in Vietnam. Over and out. Right, Frank. That was my response. Yeah, for, for, for me, I was working quite a bit with Human Rights First, their National Security Professionals Program. And we were really uh, gathering former CIA officials and FBI officials and really trying to correct the narrative uh, about torture, because it was clear to me that there was a CIA information operation ongoing Perception management is what we used to call it in the old tradecraft, where they continue to try to emphasize three things that they decided when they decided to torture. Uh, What they said in November of 2001, the lawyers, was that we need to ensure that whatever we do is viewed as effective and that we saved lives because the international community would be less likely to come, come against us. Okay, and so they needed this effectiveness argument so the public would think that torture was needed. And so their argument was it was safe, necessary and effective. And and that was the argument when Tennant was the director of the CIA and Bill Harlow was his communications specialist advocating those three things, safe, necessary and effective. Uh, George Tennant retires from the CIA and writes a book. And who does he write it with? Bill Harlow. And he talks about how safe, necessary, and effective torture was. Jose Rodriguez writes a book. Who does he write it with? Bill Harlow, advocating that torture is safe, necessary, and effective. The torture report comes out. They gather former CIA officials to say that, no, no, it's wrong. There's another side of this story. Those officials, guess guess who, who was the essay, uh, the editor of all of their essays? Bill Harlow. Since then, Mitchell, the voodoo scientist, the torture, uh, called the torture architect, the person actually just reestablished the old MKUltra program, he wrote a book about how great enhanced interrogations were, EIT, the excuses to inflict torture. Guess who it was written with? Bill Harlow, the same communications specialist with the CIA who, who was there when this narrative was established 
has continued to try to shape the public perception that torture is safe, necessary, and effective. Now, now I, I'm the one who alerted the Pentagon that the CIA techniques were gravitating from the CIA to Guantanamo, later went on to Abu Ghraib. All right. I was the one who challenged there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And so when I was wor working with, with the torture report and going around Congress briefing senators why the torture report should be released, I met with Dianne Feinstein and I, and I met with a bunch of senators. Well, it was John McCain and Dianne Feinstein who urged me to get my story out there. John McCain said the public needs to know because he was involved in the Senate Armed Service Co Committee hearings. He knew the true story. And, and so my book was really, uh, I intended it to be about the leadership challenges of leading during crisis, about what it's like telling truth to power. But it was really John McCain who really inspired me to make sure I got it across the goal line because he's the one who told me that story needs to be told. I started thinking about writing my book shortly after I left because ISIS was on the rise and this was not a new phenomenon. Um, we saw this happen with Al-Qaeda. We saw this happen with Zarqawi's organization. And I, I could see the media treating this as a new problem set and the way that the conversation and the narrative in the public domain was going about describing our, how do we deal with ISIS? I really wanted the, everybody to understand what we had done that worked and what does not work. And instead of adopting the tactics from the AUMF, which was the legislation passed that allowed the military intelligence organizations to go after everything tied to 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, and it was pretty broad as far as what tactics and strategies can be used. I didn't want to see that play out again and again and again, tying every terrorist organization that we're identifying to that. And because we've, we were finding a lot of this was not working. And that was the initially why I was thinking of writing the book. But I also wanted people to have a realistic view of the CIA where it's not James Bond. It's sometimes like The Office. And I wanted that optic to be out there as well, because just... These are humans that make mistakes and are committed to, usually committed to their job and the mission. And it's not this um, cloak and dagger, you know, thing that you see in the movies. And I just wanted that, that optic out there as well. As you can imagine, a diversity of people listen to the show and there will be some people that say, well, come on, you've signed the dotted line, you're working for an intelligence agency, and why should you be the person that decides what part of your story you get to tell? Like, surely, surely if the, to go back to your point, Ned, if the CIA want to craft some kind of narrative, then that's for them to do. It's not for, for you to correct it. So I just wondered if each of you had a kind of thought on that. Well, in response to that, uh, certainly my book was definitely not the CIA's narrative per se. It was I didn't write it as a disgruntled employee either. I see a lot of those books as well. This was really coming from my experience as a subject matter expert in the world of counterterrorism and dealing with extremist organizations in general and how that kind of radicalization can take place and how it's not all about just one cause and one kind of person that joins these organizations 
there was just, it seemed like, especially in some of the academic writings at the time, it was always just this one theme over and over. And so I just, for me, it wasn't about what the CIA wanted to do. It was about what I wanted to get out there of what I thought needed to be done. For me, uh, I think in a liberal democracy, the public has a right to know, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, illegal acts. And I, I don't think that once you've spent time and touched the base as a government employee, that they ought to have the right to shape and narrate what your opinion is for the rest of your life. And so I think it's important that we as former national security professionals who have a perspective and choose to have the right, constitutionally guaranteed right, to speak out on issues that we think are important within the public forum. And so I feel it's kind of that obligation that I talked about Roosevelt talking about in a republic. There's a responsibility to do so. Engraved on the wall of the CIA foyer is a biblical quotation, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. I believed implicitly in that doctrine. That was what guided me as a CIA agent. And what worried me along the way was that the agency forgot that. So those of you out there who think that we're doing somehow wrong and we should walk in lockstep like some Hitlerian squad, think again. Truth sometimes demands speaking truth to power, even if power is the agency. And those of us who do it are serving truth. And that's what the agency's about. If it gets that across to its members, to its agents, it's done the right thing. If they forget it, then they're thugs. They're thugs. And, and you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. And coming back to Mark, Zaid. I hear that all the time from my clients, from folks within the agencies on the notion of you knew what you signed up for. You shouldn't be speaking out. And I will say, yeah, they all know, especially nowadays, what they signed up for, but they should be speaking out. They should be speaking out lawfully. And this is what we're talking about with the pre-publication review process, that the effort to do so properly and lawfully is perfectly fine. It is well established going back decades that every one of those who served within the federal government in a classified arena has a right to publish non-classified, unclassified information. No right to publish classified information. But if you write your book properly, if you go through the review process properly, assuming it's being handled properly, you have every right and should not be condemned in any way for contributing to that. And it's not what it used to be. If you look back to the books about the FBI, the CIA in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, it's all the former senior officials, the directors, Hoover and Dulles and the rest writing the books. It's not the folks who have the actual subject matter expertise like we have on this panel. And works like theirs contribute significantly to our democracy. And so long as it's done right and right on both sides, and the other side is broken, unfortunately, 
then there is no reason why they shouldn't be writing. They are contributing to democracy, not undermining democracy. It's the illegal classified leaks that undermine democracy. And that's not what How does all of this compare to, say, we have a lot of listeners in the UK, Australia, and so forth, like, is this a particularly American phenomenon, or is it, like, how does it come? I'm thinking immediately of the spy catcher case, the, the Peter Wright, a former senior intelligence officer, um, wanted to publish, and he ended up doing so from Australia to get around various uh, legal hurdles that were there. Like, help us get our heads around how this might compare to other countries. Sure. For, I mean, from a legal perspective, it, it's very different. This is a U.S. constitutional issue. And there might be in some con- other countries where they have a similar statutory or regulatory right from where you were from or are from, Andrew. United Kingdom has. Uh, it's, it's not as wor- bad as it used to be, but the Official Secrets Act, where no one within any intelligence agency can ever publish anything. Our provisions have developed over the years. They are better now than they used to be, which again is since you've heard in all this podcast, we're not where we need to be. But like I said, I mean, it is a well-established right that everyone has a First Amendment right to publish non-governmental information, meaning unclassified information, hands down. And some of what was described uh, Nada mentioned the notion of redacting General McChrystal's name. That's actually very unique to the Defense Department. For whatever reason, the Defense Department always wants to redact names for privacy reasons. It's not a classification issue. I doubt they explained it very well to Nada. I was not allowed to be in the meeting, <laughs> which is also undermining the, the process. Uh, so she had to fare for herself, and she did great. Uh, but... This, this is very much an American situation. You really don't hear about this in other countries. And generally speaking, I would say when you have someone in another country from their intelligence agency who writes a book, they tend to be found in another country afterwards when they write the book. And there's a reason we for that. We also have something the Britons, uh, British don't have, which is known as the First Amendment. The First Amendment in its classic meaning is a ban on prior restraint. You cannot censor someone before they speak. You can't prevent a publication from being published. That's written essentially into the Constitution. Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera. So when it happens in this country, when we are facing prior restraint, because that's what we're talking about, it's basically anti-American. It's basically anti-First Amendment. That's why it's so devastating here. It's more understandable in Britain, uh, Andrew, because you don't have a First Amendment. The Official Secrets Act is, uh, okay, it's just tradition. Flows out of, you know, sort of the noblesse oblige. We do have one. And so the system we're talking about, and for those of you out there who think, well, you know, just sign on the dotted line, you follow your orders, etc., read the First Amendment, God bless it, and that's what we should be adhering to. And this system has walked so far away from it, it's barely within whistling distance of the First Amendment. I think um, we've, we've done a pretty good job of getting our arms around this, but I just want to make sure that I understand. I'm putting myself in the 
shoes of the listener just to just to really make sure I know what's going on here. So so I join an intelligence agency. I'm made to sign something saying that I I can't repeat secrets any further. If I'm just saying something that's in the public domain, then it shouldn't be an issue. So why just asking a kind of uh, very simplistic question? I, I still don't understand why it's, still, it's such an issue then. If I'm saying something that's in the public domain, Frank was saying that you are all skilled and knowing what a secret is and what it looks like and making a, a conscious decision not to release it. So why is it still an issue? Why can't you just write the books that you want to write as long as you don't betray any secrets? Well, look, part, I, I, here, Frank, let me, let me kind of give an, a, an easier overview here. Part of it is when folks like these write the books, they are perceived to, in some ways, be telling more of the truth than when it would come out of the mouthpieces of the leadership. You know, when Alan Dulles wrote books, I don't know to the extent that Alan Dulles actually wrote any of the book or J. Edgar Hoover. These were the, the mouthpieces of the agencies. They were pushing policy. And the best example that I've had that, I, that explains the concerns is, is a pre-pub issue, but it is, it is one where the person was still in the government, but it actually explains it better. I had an NSA, National Security Agency client, who wrote a, a paper, an academic paper, about mathematics. I, I have no idea what the hell it was about, right? I, I would never understand what he's talking about. And he wrote it before he joined NSA, but it was going to be published because it went through peer review after he started it at NSA. And he had to submit it for pre-pub because of that now current relationship. And NSA did not let him publish it. It actually took 10 years to get approval, but they didn't let him publish it because they were concerned that if someone saw and read the article with that guy's name on it, that they, the reader, would assume that what was talked about by way of code in the article was something that was of interest to NSA. And NSA didn't want to telegraph to anybody that it had an interest in whatever the heck this, you know, over my head writing was about. And it is sometimes the affiliation. This is what the argument will be, the affiliation of the person that pe- because they think that people will believe it, what is written in the books, even though that's actually not, as we've already discussed, the reason for the pre-pub review, or at least the substantive Just a couple of final points, and then we'll wrap it up. I guess one of the things that I've been thinking the whole time is, to what extent is this like about power and control by these institutions or by the leaders of those these institutions? To what extent is it mendacity or or is it really just a good old fashioned example of government misfunction and bureaucratic? Uh, everyone's at sixes and sevens. Uh, what's your take on it all? Like what's going on here? It's some of this seems to be from what you're saying that it's just a case of disciplining the troops and making sure that they are all kind of towing the line and that the institution and its leaders are not going to be they're not going to be shown in a bad light. Um, any thoughts on any of that? I'll talk a little bit about that. So, so I think a lot of this is about protecting the tribe, right? Protecting the institution. I know with me. Of course, my issue is about state-sponsored torture. 
It is about war crimes that the U.S. government committed in the name of the people. I mean, th th this, this is clear and unequivocal. I mean, the prohibition against torture was absolute. Uh, the CIA and the U.S. government made a decision to ignore that. And so I challenge that, and I do so when the people who made those decisions were still in power. Okay, and, and so when my book was about to be published, you had Mitchell and Jessen, the contractors who the CIA brought in and who made 80, over $80 million as part of the torture program, at least Mitchell and Jessen Associates did, where there was a trial, a tort trial, the ACLU uh, going on against them. And so my, publishing my book would have been very detrimental to the U.S. government, who uh, had an indemnity clause that they gave Mitchell and Jessen only after the Abu Ghraib photos were released, decided that we better give them some legal protection to shut them up. We made decisions based on fear, ignorance, and arrogance, and people in power don't like when we point that out because they're in job to protect their bureaucracies, and we challenge that. Each of us challenges that in our own ways, in our own spheres, and that's that's why we're a problem. Ada, you were you know, shaking I want your to speak for the intelligence agencies Sorry. for a second because I think their views deserve some attention here. We've we've paid uh, some deference to it. You know, uh, discipline is very important in the military. Many of the precedents to my case came out of the military. If you're in the U.S. military, you don't have the the same constitutional rights people on the outside. That's because discipline is key. And very early on, outside of all these circumstances we've been discussing, two people have done things that showed an absolute indifference to discipline that was devastating. Philip Agee, who was a CIA agent back in the 70s, began leaking the names of CIA agents. That action, those actions, was just unspeakable. And he, he set agents who were undercover up for a kill. And that action so soured uh, liberal thinkers in the agency, made them nervous that they sort of overreacted. We've got to do something to, to reinstill discipline. And I hate to say it, but Snowden did the same thing. So there are examples out there that unfortunately reinforce the notion that discipline must be maintained at all costs. Otherwise, national security could be at risk. Philip Agee proved that, and so did Snowden. So, folks, for all of our very valuable arguments, the government has some points of view that are worth paying attention to. The question is, how do you balance their interests with the interests of free speech? And that's really the key, isn't it? So I think it's a combination I think there is, in some cases, politicization that's happening, and there is information that they don't want out that might not be um, palatable for the public to hear. I think sometimes it's just bureaucracy, but I think in many cases, it's a combination because so many of these manuscripts are subjected to so many different agency reviews. In my case, the CIA didn't seem to care as much as the DOD about the substance of the book. Um, there were, I flew right through my meeting with CIA and got just small word changes done um, with my, my DOD meeting was an all day long affair um, with lots of conversation around what they had primacy over and what they didn't. So I think it's really 
a combination of many different things. And a, some of this just comes down to lack of guidance for um, the entire intelligence community apparatus. Nobody has a standard to which they really are able to understand and adhere to when they're reviewing these books. I, I just want to kind of close off by asking e each of our authors what advice they would give to uh, someone that's in the IC or who's left the IC who are thinking of submitting a book uh, other than calling uh, Mark at Zaid Esquire. That's the best advice to give. Each one of them should just say, just this call Mark. This is just Mark. like one big commercial for you. <laughs> Basically, that's, that's, that's the uh, quid pro quo about not paying his fees. Um, <laughs> before we get there, Mark, um, is there any like last words from you before we get some advice from our authors on potential authors that are out there? We joke about it, but it, it really is understand what your rights and obligations are, whether that's consult with your agency that has your equities, your uh, lawful obligation exists to consult with them for guidance. I mean, there are many good people in these review boards in each agency that want to help you uh, to get this, get the book out. But as well, consult someone who has an expertise and experience outside of that process. Uh, a lawyer is, frankly, the better way to go. But even talking to someone who has gone through it before so you have a better understanding of what the experience is. Because uh, what we want to do is maximize your ability to publish and minimize the risk to you to get into trouble. And each of our authors, what advice would you give to someone out there that's potentially thinking of walking uh, in similar shoes to each of you? My advice would be just remember, no good deed goes unpunished. Whistleblowing is a blood sport. And if you think you're going to be honored for honoring the truth, forget it. You're going to be trashed. And that's why you be, be, better be very sure you believe in what you are pushing, what you're pushing out there. You're not going to be honored in your own house. The honor comes with telling the truth and getting the truth out. Hey, all Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. <laughs>